This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, my name is Richard Kai, President and CEO of the Institute of the Americas located in La Jolla, California, here on the campus of the University of California, San Diego. On behalf of the Institute, I am pleased to welcome you to the Institute's first program, of our 2022 Distinguished Lecture Series. Today, we're honored to have with us Dr. Moises Naim, author of the book, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics in the 21st Century. The book is now available. Before we get started, I wanna thank our board member, Malin Burnham, and the Burnham Foundation that helped to make this program possible. At this time, I would like to turn to Dr. Naim and the important and timely perspective that he offers us, particularly in light of the recent events unfolding today in real time with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, as well as the attack on democratic institutions around the world, including here in the United States. Dr. Naim's new book helps, us, helps to remind us all that the grow, of the growing influence of autocrats across the Americas, which are writing the coattails of popularism and anti-politics. None of us can take this for granted um, as our democracies are ultimately under assault. Those in Venezuela, they've learned that lesson the hard way. At this time, I am pleased to introduce Jorge Rosenblatt, the chairman of the Institute of the Americas, who will introduce our distinguished speaker, Moises Naim. Jorge, take it away. Thank you so much, Richard. Uh, Hello to everyone on this great event. Being the chairman of the board, of the Institute of the Americas is a great privilege for me. One of the manifestations of this uh, uh, privilege is that you get to introduce a person of the caliber of Dr. Moises Naim. He is considered the world leading, one of the world leading thinkers by British magazine Prospect, one of the 100 most influential global thought leaders by Swiss think tank GDI, Gottlieb Dottweiler Institute. He received the Ortega y Gasset Prize, one of the most prestigious awards for journalism in the Spanish language. He is a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for Peace in Washington, DC. He is the founder and chairman of the board of the Group of 50, which brings together top flight progressive Latin Central American business leaders. And ladies and gentlemen, I could go on and on. Moises Naim is truly a trendsetter. His books are bestsellers, and I will only name a few. The End of Power in 2013, recognized by many world leaders as a must read. Elicit, Washington Post in 2005, named one of the best nonfiction books of the year. It has been published in 18 languages. And with this new book, The Revenge of Power, Moises takes us to the current brutal, unsteady, risky present times by connecting populism, polarization, and post-truth, probably the politically correct term for lying and seizing and hoarding power. These three Ps, as he calls them, now being combined by autocrats to undermine democratic life. Now, with the capacity of Moises to understand the future ahead of time, he had just published 
in the Foreign Affairs magazine last edition, an essay, The Dictator's New Playbook. Watching current events, including Russia, Ukraine development, and what reading the book, I rest my case. Moises Naim, ladies and gentlemen, is from another league. So it is my pleasure and privilege today to leave this Zoom to my very good friend, Dr. Moises Naim. Moises, take it away. Thank you, Jorge. Thank you, Steve, uh, for the, and Richard, for the invitation, for the kind introduction, for your generous hospitality. It's uh, quite a privilege for me to be talking to you and, uh, and having an exchange of ideas and perspectives with your audience. Let me start uh, um, by citing uh, Jose Ortega y Gasset, a very well-known uh, political philosopher uh, from Spain. Writing in 1938-1939 in Europe, he was very worried by the trends that he was watching. And uh, in that book, uh, in one of his books about that, he wrote, we don't know what is happening to us. And that is exactly what is happening to us, not knowing what's going on. Uh, and we have the right uh, uh, to, to, to feel that way, not knowing what's going on. We have uh, now this week, the latest we have is a war. Uh, before that, we have the pandemic. Before that, uh, or, or simultaneously, we had financial crashes in 2008, 2009, as you recall. Uh, we have the revolutions brought by artificial intelligence that have changed and will continue to change drastically the way we work, the way we shop, the way we uh, live in many important ways. Of course, we have the pandemic that has appended our lives and ways of doing things. Um, we see political, geopolitical upheaval around the world, but we also see people taking to the streets. They going to the streets and marching and denouncing and protesting has become a way of political participation, not necessarily affiliated uh, with an ideology or political party. It's just uh, a, a statement of unhappiness uh, with the situation. Uh, the streets of the world, uh, the public squares, the highways, uh, taking them and blocking them uh, is now part of the reality of political reality in different places. Most recently, we saw it in Canada. Uh, who would have said the gentle uh, country where politics are not as rough and, and, and raw as they are anywhere else, uh, but still it faced Canada face the takeover of one of its main cities and the blocking of uh, the main cities by a group of uh, uh, truckers and, and other uh, protesters. So geopolitical upheaval, political upheaval, the streets uh, on fire, a pandemic, a mental health crisis uh, generally recognized as one of the untreated uh, byproducts of all what's going on, um, and, uh, and, and, and growing intolerance for inequality, for gender discrimination, for uh, the way we relate with each other. So it is within all that that we need to make sense uh, which is very hard because things are moving all the time and are very, very fluid. But I have identified for my own uh, perspective, for, for my own use, 
a, a few ideas that helped me uh, understand and looking at the world through that lens uh, is quite revealing, at least for me. One uh, is um, the ideas about the mutation of power, how power is changing, not necessarily uh, the nature of power, the power is, uh, the, the, the definition of power has not changed. Power is getting others to do or stop doing something you want them to stop doing or do. Uh, so that hasn't changed much. What has changed are the origins, the sources of that power, and how that power is wielded. Uh, Jorge, in his introduction, uh, mentioned a prior book, a book I wrote nine years ago titled The End of Power. In that book, I surveyed the ways in which power was being fragmented, weakened, degraded, and how um, this, the, what was happening to power and try to disentangle uh, all that was going around it. And one of the central, or perhaps the central message of that book, The End of Power, was that in the 21st century, power has become easier to acquire, harder to use, and easier to lose. And that happened everywhere, in every country, every city. Uh, it happened in politics, but it also happened in business, uh, where we saw uh, newcomers dislodging from power, established uh, behemoth companies that are we thought uh, were untouchable and unmovable. Uh, we see it in uh, culture, we see it in religion. Wherever power is a currency, you can detect how it has become easier to acquire by newcomers playing with a different playbook. Uh, but then when they get power, uh, it's, uh, they discover that it's not what they thought. It's uh, much, much harder to wield, and therefore very often they lose it. And so easier to acquire, hard to use, easy to lose. That is happening now. And uh, if, if you could uh, imagine the recent leaders, uh, you can see that that pattern has seen, we have seen that pattern. We have seen people identified as some of the most powerful people in the world that continue to be powerful, but, uh, but uh, they have constraints. They can no longer do whatever they want. They are limited by uh, uh, others, by institutions, by global trends, by new technologies, by a variety of factors that uh, undermine their ability to just concentrate power uh, completely. Um, after nine years, I, I, I started writing a new book, which is the one that was published past week, this week, uh, titled The Revenge of Power. And essentially, uh, it starts with the assumption that people that have power are not just sitting down waiting for the forces of fragmentation to take over and dislodge them from their privileged position. So that's the revenge of power. It's an examination of the forces that uh, fragment and concentrate power. So I like to make the, the, the equivalence. Uh, the end of power was a look at the centrifugal forces that spread power. And uh, the end of the revenge of power is, uh, is, is, a, is an examination of the forces of the centripetal forces that concentrate power. And it's a clash and intertwining and the uh, mutually influencing patterns between these uh, uh, two kinds of forces, those that concentrate power and those that fragment it, that explain a lot of what's going on. So is Vladimir Putin very powerful? Undoubtedly. Will he be powerful uh, for the long term? 
Perhaps uh, not. Uh, or, you know, it's very hard to make those calls in individual situations that are still unfolding. But uh, one, there is one way of interpreting what's happened uh, uh, to him and to Russia and in Ukraine to understand that, that uh, his victory in, long, in five years from now, we don't know how that will look. It may look like the end of Putin and the Putin era, or it may look like the consolidation of a tyrant. Uh, in that area of the world, and perhaps with uh, attempts at expanding it even further beyond Ukraine. But so that that observation about power, easier to hide, to acquire, harder to use, easier to lose, plus the other one, which is about power is also concentrating, and it's happening simultaneously. Um, it's uh, is one uh, one angle that I use to understand what's going on. Another is that to pay attention to the fact that the, the many of the things that we thought permanent have proven to be transient, and many of the things that we felt were just transitory are here to stay. Um, think about the remote work. Uh, remote work, we, we always thought that this was just during the pandemic. We would stay home, the pandemic would go away, and we'd go back to our cubicles. Well, it's not working out that way. Uh, the nature of work, where it happens, how it happens, with whom, uh, and uh, what are the arrangements, and uh, what are the incentives and uh, compensations, and, and other uh, everything has been appended by, by that. So, so work, work that we thought you know work is work and will continue to be work well, uh, and uh, was not transit. I, you know, work, uh, uh, remote work is going to stay with us even after the pandemic abates or disappears. But then things that we thought permanent, untouchable, uh, are still with us, uh, but in question. Uh, it's not clear that what our assumptions, for example, about the permanence, the staying, power of American democracy was uh, uh, untouched. It turns out that we have seen plenty of examples uh, in which uh, American democracy has been under, uh, has been attacked. Um, and, you know, a, a day doesn't go by without uh, reading or sh an article or lo looking at the news in which uh, the debate about the survival or the uh, the, the nature of American democracy is being challenged, and perhaps American democracy is not as permanent as we as, as we assumed. So the the, the confusion about uh, what's what's here to stay and is uh, unmovable and unchangeable, and what changes is is part of the way we should we should look at the world and try to understand how even aspects, business models, ways of thinking, ideologies, uh, distributions of uh, power and activity and uh, politics and economics um, may uh, be more transient. Some are going to be transient and others are going to be permanent. Another, um, another way of looking at the world that helps me understand some of the things that's going on is uh, what I call geopolitical necrophilia. Necrophilia is a perversion that some human beings, mostly men, suffer, which is uh, an, uh, an, 
a strong attraction uh, to cadavers. Uh, they feel very, very, uh, you know, very attracted to cadavers. I claim that there is a political dimension of, uh, polit of, of necrophilia, a political necrophilia, which is a strong attachment to bad ideas, to bad policies. Policies that we have seen once and again around the world in the same country at different times in different ways, but they all end up in failure. Uh, and, and yet, periodically, regularly, very regularly, they come back. Bad ideas come back, are embraced by populists, by others that make offers and promises to garner the support of the people. Uh, and uh, necrophilia has, is, the, we, we are going through a bout of necrophilia, of uh, using again old ideas that never end well uh, for the great majority of the people. I have no doubt that uh, behind uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's decisions to invade Ukraine, there is a huge uh, dose of political necrophilia where they were looking at the world in, which it, in ways in which it was uh, and, and, and ways that we had thought we abandoned because we have very bad ideas, but we're back. The reshaping, redrawing of uh, national boundaries, the invading uh, by force, uh, you know, all we, what we have seen. And I finally summarized uh, what uh, uh, was going on in terms of a new way of uh, exerting power by autocrats. And I, I mentioned that, that there is a new breed of, tech, of uh, autocrats that are undermining democracy from inside, that are uh, eventually they get elected democratically, but immediately they start undermining um, the checks and balances that define a democracy, that stop uh, uh, power, that limit the, the, the concentration of power in one institution or one individual. And um, those, uh, I, I called, I called this uh, new breed of uh, autocrats the three P autocrats because they use uh, uh, the, the, the main tools that they use is populism, polarization, and post-truth. The three have always existed, except that now they're coming back uh, with renewed potency and the way they are intertwined, amplified, energized by new technologies and by other societal changes and new economics and new ways of which we organize our political life uh, have allowed uh, these 3P autocrats to gain a lot of uh, power around the world. And Putin surely is one of them. Populism, which is often uh, mistakenly confused as an ideology, is not. Populism is just a set uh, of uh, practices, strategies, behaviors, styles even, um, that uh, used uh, at the service, pl placed at the service of those uh, who want, want to want power or have, uh, want to retain power. Populism is as old as politics, is based on the old uh, uh, idea of conquer, uh, divide and conquer. Uh, and so if you divide society enough, you retain the power to, to, to run it. Um, uh, the, the way in which this is done uh, is uh, we have seen how very, very different leaders with completely opposite ideologies, different background, different perspectives, but uh, different everything. But then uh, we see them when using 
power uh, and their populism is identical, that their toolkit is identical. In the book, The Revenge of Power, I have chapters about um, how Hugo Chavez, the Venezuela's dictator, and Donald Trump are resemble in incredibly uncanny ways, even though they are very, very different. And one of the things they do is uh, steer and deepen the cleavages of society, and that's polarization. Polarization has always existed, uh, is uh, different social groups clashing, uh, competing for a power, presenting different ideas or representing different groups, different interests, different ideologies. Um, and so in many ways, there is a, a polarization, which is now very common around the world and uh, most democracies today are hyper-polarized and therefore uh, have a hard time functioning. But I, I claim that there is uh, that polarization is, is like cholesterol. There is good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Well, there is good polarization and bad polarization. Good polarization is the one in which there, a democratic society organizes, articulates the different groups, different ideas, interests, and so on. And eventually that dispute is resolved by elections. And uh, one group wins the election and then uh, works or doesn't work uh, in coalitions and alliances with others. That's democracy, you know, one aspect of democracy. But there is an alternative, very bad way of uh, thinking, of acting in terms of polarization. And that is uh, the polarization that is so extreme that uh, um, it makes it impossible to govern. It's hard to come uh, uh, to an agreement on basic ideas, basic arrangements, the social contract, even the very basic contract. The reading of uh, what's going on is uh, completely uh, uh, obliterated by the, the, the hatred even uh, against uh, those who don't, don't share the same way of thinking. And so polarization uh, also then uh, serves to amplify and add to amplify the, the wedges and division of society and bring new ones, very often even imported from other countries where the three P dictators are uh, working. And then there is the th third P that is uh, the end uh, is the post-truth which is we have always lived with that. That's called propaganda. It's political propaganda. It's normal. Um, Adolf Hitler has a propaganda ministry. Um, in China, they have a ministry of propaganda. But this is different. This is beyond uh, a government uh, that issues uh, a campaign, informational campaign, to uh, influence uh, the way it is perceived by the, the voters or the followers or the citizens. Um, this is a, a, a way, this, this, this way of thinking, this way of operating, the post-truth way uh, attempts against the basic sharing of a reality. We do not expect uh, um, a reality to represent uh, the way we are, uh, we are thinking. And then this clashing uh, uh, views uh, are also very paralyzed. And those three things and their effects are the ones that create conditions for these new autocrats to operate. And they operate in very similar ways. Stealthy um, activities are very important. Or the minding checks and balances, as I just already said, is very important. Um, 
and, and manipulating the logistics of democracy is very important. Pretending that there is a democracy, uh, well, there is not a democracy, it is uh, fake, uh, is very common. I recently, I, I did some research on a very interesting paradox. Um, democracy is in recession. For the last 16 years, the number of countries that could be called a functioning democracy has been going down. At the same time, um, the number of uh, ele elections has soared, is booming. So there are elections everywhere, every day, uh, for prime minister, for president, for um, members of Congress, regional authorities, uh, governors, uh, everything. At this point, I'm sure that somewhere in the world, an election uh, is going on. So how do one, does one reconcile the decline of democracy and booming elections? Well, the answer is, of course, that many of these elections are sham elections. So they are not really, these are autocrats that are pretending to have elections, but they, they are not fair and free and credible and legitimate. But they hold on to them. It's very interesting to see that even the most... Uh, extreme autocrats still want to be perceived as Democrats. They need the seal of good housekeeping that the democracy bestows in a regime. And uh, Putin is a good example of this when he was term limited at one point before and he had to, 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 to leave power, he essentially invented a, a, a switch and bait kind of move where, um, you know, he had got the vice president to act as president and then he had another role. But everybody knew, everybody knew that he was still running the show. In a lot of these elections, everybody knows that they are tricked, that they are, they are corrupted. Uh, and yet they still go ahead with it. And the main reason is because they give them even uh, a little bit of, uh, of legitimacy. Legitimacy, which is the power that society gives a, a ruler to, to govern them, is in very short supply in the world today. Because in order to be legitimate, among other reasons, you have to be a good, a good leader, um, among other reasons. But um, it's very hard to govern these days because the kind, the quantity of emergency difficulties, um, it very, it makes it very hard to be a successful uh, government. And 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 the frustration of the population soars, and it, there is a, a, a very bad political situation that in large part then erodes uh, legitimacy and makes it very even harder to govern. So this lack of legitimacy is going to be with us and we're going to explain a lot of what's going on. And the search for this legitimacy is an example of the stealthy, opaque, uh, mendacious ways in which these uh, uh, autocrats uh, uh, seek uh, uh, to retain power and it's part of the toolkit that they use. I think I'm going to stop here to uh, engage with you in your questions uh, and, uh, and, and have a conversation. Thank you. Well, says thank you so much for um, your, um, your observations and remarks. Um, I want to start with um, the um, current invasion of uh, Ukraine, as that's on everyone's mind right now. In your book, you, you mention um, the following. Vladimir Putin has proceeded further down the road of gangsterization 
than any of the other practitioners of the 3P framework. And the mafia state operating out of the Kremlin now destabilizes countries worldwide. I want to see if you could elaborate on that quote uh, from your book. Um, Sure. Uh, Thank you. Um, We all know that corruption is a factor in political life everywhere. Uh, Corruption typically entails uh, someone outside the government that it cahoots with somebody inside the government, uh, arrive at a deal in which, uh, you know, there's overpricing, kickbacks, or a payment, uh, a payment if you change, if you're allowed to change a regulation or a real estate zoning, uh, building permits. All, all that is corruption. There's a transaction that is essentially illegal that benefits uh, both somebody inside the government and somebody outside the government. So that's that's a traditional way of corruption. But that doesn't quite capture what is going on now. And now we have another dimension that is called kleptocracy. These are governments that are essentially looting the the, the country for the benefits of themselves, their family, their cronies, and typically the military. They don't have uh, any any major geopolitical interest. They don't have. They are there to loot uh, and steal as much as possible in 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 the shortest possible. Period. So that's that's kleptocracy. But the, I, I also think that that's, that doesn't quite capture what is going on, which is the criminalization of the state, which is the state does not only use uh, these criminal behaviors to enrich the leaders of the regime, but also uses this uh, these criminal behaviors uh, to as, as, as a toolkit in the in the statecraft. Uh, in managing um, the relations, political relations, it, it uses um, it, it, organized crime becomes uh, uh, inside the government. At the top of government is an, an organized crime criminal organization that runs it, not just to make money, but also to use uh, a crime and international um, uh, international criminal organizations to further their uh, their goals uh, and essentially stay in power. I want to elaborate on, you talked about um, the toolkits that autocrats use, including Putin. In your book, you you talked about specific power tools. You spoke about the psychological, communicational, um, uh, technological, legal, electoral, financial, and organizational power tools of autocrats. Could you elaborate on that? Well, each one of those uh, has a ways of view. You know, a lot of them are quite old, but now they have been combined and, and, and re-engineered for the current times. One, they are all driven. Also, they are all based and benefit from the demonization of the rivals and the demonization of the past. The populists and the three P. Leaders need to explain, need to persuade their country that the past uh, was unacceptable uh, and that they, here are they to correct uh, what the, uh, all the wrongs that were in society. We just recently heard um, uh, Vladimir Putin in a very long diatribe about uh, that he completely distorted the story of Ukraine, but that he uses to justify his in, his invasion of U- Ukraine. Well, he that's normal. They use that all the time. The perver- you know the distortion of historical realities, uh, the lying, and the demonization 
attention of those that uh, challenge them or that are rivals or don't believe in their uh, in their government. In, in your book, you talked about the one of the tactics of autocrats is norm breaking. Um, you you talk a lot about some of the tactics that Donald Trump used, um, and he certainly broke many norms here in the United States. I wonder if you could elaborate on that and and how you see that as a a method in which autocrats begin to take power in their respective countries. That has a lot to do with another trend, which is anti-politics. Uh, and uh, it's based, it started in Latin America with the idea that everyone that had any, had, had anything to do with power need to go. Que se vayan todos uh, was the phrase used in throughout Latin America. And that means, you know, we don't believe in any of uh, you in the, in, the, in the business sector of you, the bankers or you, the journalists or you, uh, the government officials. Uh, just leave, just get out. And everything that was done uh, in politics was unacceptable, foul uh, and corrupt. And so anti-politics became a very strong force. And you constantly find that people in in many countries, you find people that will tell you, I don't care about politics. They are crooks. They are there to enrich themselves. They are corrupt. Um, and, and so there is no point of going through the emotions of believing in elections and everything else. So anti-politics is very, very important. As part of the anti-politics, the more you have that, the more... T- you know, breaking the rules and and breaking with social contracts and breaking with arrangements that have held the country or the government or the state together become a very important options. And and we we have seen Donald Trump uh, doing it again this week when for the first time ever, uh, a former president, uh, uh, you know, Offers an alternative view of that of the of the government of the United States with respect uh, to how to think about Putin, which he clearly uh, admires. Um, on the topic of breaking norms, one of the one of the topics you bring up in your book is how autocrats are um, manipulating the media. You um, you cite examples um, such as Boris Johnson, of course, Trump. But also we see examples in Italy and Brazil. Um, I want to see if you can elaborate on on that and also how you see um, the world today and the vulnerabilities of media, in particular um, what they call the mainstream media, um, in being able to um, fight back against some of these autocratic tendencies. The 3P autocrats don't have a, a comfortable relationship with data with numbers, with evidence. So any evidence-based uh, proposal is, is a threat to them. Who has that? Well, scientists, experts, academics, and journalists. They are the ones that have the data to show that what the autocrats are doing is a bad idea. Uh, it's a manifestation of political necrophilia. It's a backward-looking. Uh, so s- neutralizing experts, quote-unquote, neutralizing the media uh, uh, is very important. And the way to do it is by demonizing it. And again, it's quite striking. And the book has examples how very different individuals, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, um, talking uh, against the media sounds exactly the same as uh, the president uh, of uh, uh, Hungary. 
even though they are very different and di- different countries and different individuals. So that is a pattern that we see internationally that, um, that is quite revealing in terms of uh, the very uncomfortable um, relationship that they have with evidence and data. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I want to turn to Latin America. How do you see the landscape today in Latin America, given the growing prevalence of populism and anti-politics we're seeing in the region? You're from Venezuela. You were form- the former minister of uh, trade and, um, and industry in Venezuela. And obviously, a lot has changed in your country. But obviously, you have a perspective across the hemisphere. So I'd like to get your thoughts. Well, first, uh, when one talks about Latin America, bringing Venezuela is um, a distortion because Venezuela is an extreme case uh, that has very peculiar uh, characteristics. And we can discuss them and we can just have a conversation about Venezuela, where how did it get there? How do we get out of there? The tragedy that is Venezuela today. But the reality is that uh, uh, Latin America is moving left. Uh, the main, you know, we have a new left of center president in Chile, uh, same in Peru. Uh, we have uh, uh, Fernandez and Kirchner in Argentina. It looks like Lula da Silva in Brazil will become again uh, the president. Maduro in Venezuela. There is a left of, uh, of center uh, a candidate that is leading the polls in um, Colombia. So it's very probable, there is a, not a minor probability that next year Latin America is going to veer uh, quite significantly to the left. Um, on that point, um, we have several viewers um, originating from both the U.S. and Mexico. You highlight in your book that both countries have been victims of the three Ps. What lessons can the U.S. and Mexico draw from your home country, Venezuela, as you point out, um, the rise of Trump is is a movie that you've seen before, but only in Spanish. So I thought you could just comment on that. Yeah, it was quite striking to see uh, to see Trump uh, uh, doing what he did. Uh, you know, even in the campaign, he he kept doing think, uh, things that I said. Well, I have seen uh, that this movie before, except that it was in Spanish, and Hugo Chavez was the protagonist. And it's quite significant, uh, the, 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 the parallels and the similarities. But you also ask about Mexico and the United States. In Mexico, we have uh, one of the main uh, examples of necrophilia, of political necrophilia. Lopez Obrador's uh, policies are clearly based in a very old, uh, outdated, uh, obs- obsolescent uh, understanding. Uh, of what, of how, what is that, that does it mean to propel an economy towards, you know, both democracy and progress? Thank you. Um, I want to turn to the, the Summit of the Americas. As you know, the United States is going to be hosting the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles on June 6th through the 10th in LA. The theme of the summit is building a sustainable, resilient, and equitable future. And the key focus of the summit is going to be promotion of the democracy across the Americas. Given the fragility of democracies in the Americas today, um, what, in your opinion, can the United States do in terms of providing leadership to counteract some of these forces that we're seeing um, today um, and that's driving some of the autocrats um, throughout the region? Well, um, there are several assumptions there. Uh, 
one of the assumptions is that the United States it can be a model for the rest and uh, can lecture the region on how to manage democracy. You know, I don't think uh, the United States today is in a position to be very credible as, uh, you know, when one sees the kind of debates, when one listens to what senators and and members of the House, uh, the way they talk about uh, uh, policies and, uh, and, and and the political process, and uh, the, it, it looks very, very dire. Uh, and so that's that's one. And so w- one of the the way to do to perhaps think about that is what the United States cannot teach Latin America. What are the mistakes that took place in the United States that, that Latin Americans need to be, they, you know, um aware of, of of that so th- that's one aspect um uh, and and again uh, you know these summits have taken place quite a bit uh, uh except for a few of them uh they have uh, yielded very little for the you know for the typical citizens they have not meant much you know in your in your book you talk about um important ways that uh democracies can counteract um, some of these autocratic tendencies. You talk about five things in particular, the battle against the big lie, the battle against criminalized governments, the battle against autocracies that seek to undermine democracies, the battle against political cartels that stifle competition, and the battle against illiberal narratives. I wonder if you could comment on, on that point that you make in the yeah, there are five uh, battles that we need to win in order to win the battle for democracy and against autocracy. The first one is a big lie. You know, we all know that politicians uh, embellish, exaggerate, distort, and sometimes just lie uh, outrightly uh, about things. And uh, But now we have bigger lies. Uh, we have uh, lies that are, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's Boris Johnson uh, and Brexit. You know, Boris Johnson was part of the group uh, in the UK that uh, developed and pushed Brexit and successfully passed it. And it was all based on lies. Uh, all the statistics, all the numbers, or, or all the, uh, it was, all, and they continued. So they, they lied big time uh, and nothing happened. In fact, the contrary happened. He was rewarded and became uh, first, uh, was a secretary of uh, foreign affairs, uh, and then now the prime minister. Um, Donald Trump, uh, you know, the big lie about uh, his election, uh, which is a fundamental, very important uh, kind of things. And there are millions of Americans that believe that, uh, that his election was stolen, even though all the evidence points in the other direction. Um, Vladimir Putin, that, uh, you know, his lies first, that he will never, uh, he was not going to invade Ukraine, and effectively he did. Or, you know, his distortion of the, of the history of uh, uh, of uh, Ukraine. So you, the big lies, what, what happens is that there is no cost to them. Uh, if anybody's caught on a big lie, you know, it doesn't seem to pay the consequences. I think it's urgent that societies get organized to make uh, the costs, the risks, and the consequences of lying more uh, important. Um, the, and the peaceful coexistence with big lies. And, no, and, you know, if there is one, societies need to develop the tools, institutions, and technologies to expose the, uh, and, and make, uh, and make uh, the liars, the, the big liars in politics, pay a price. 
Uh, there are several others. There are five in total, but I will not bore you with all of them. Uh, the last one that's very important is about the narrative, the illiberal narrative, which uh, uh, reeks of anti-politics, uh, the, the illiberal narrative that reeks of uh, anti-politics that, uh, you know, doesn't believe in um, the, the the basics of democracy uh, is gaining terrain. And, um, and you, you know, we were talking about Latin America uh, and it's a shift to the left. Uh, well, a, a lot of that shift, the, the people espousing that have a narrative that is illiberal and that uh, cannot be, has not been effectively countered by those of us that believe in the liberal um, narrative. So we need to, to, to think about that. But also be aware that there is not just a problem of substance and, and the subject of, of, of the narrative. Uh, democracy is defective. Democracy will need to be fixed. Um, the, it has uh, problems. It, it, it doesn't address some of the 21st century challenges that we have. It doesn't address a new class of individuals or societies that have different requirements, demands, expectations, frustrations, uh, and ways of thinking about life. So democracy needs to be fixed, and but the, the way it is presented to the world also needs to be improved. Um, on on that point, and related to um, this challenge on battling the um, the liberal narratives that we're seeing more, um, I wanted to see if you could touch on the topic of big tech. Uh, you spoke about it a lot in your book, um, the power of Facebook, Twitter and other social media um, in being able to manipulate um, and misinform uh, publics around the world. Um, I want to see if you could talk about the role that you see that the government needs to play in regulating big tech to address some of these challenges that we face in democracy around the world. I believe that consumers need to be protected um, by the state. Um, not uh, with limitations. I am not a big government uh, kind of uh, person. But, um, you know, we have uh, uh, consumer protection agencies for manufactured products, for chemical, uh, pharmaceutical products, for our food. Uh, you know, there are government agencies that uh, worry and ensure <clears throat> that the private sector doesn't deliver food that is tainted or medicines that are toxic and so on. So we have all of that for products that are manufactured. We even have it for some services. But we don't have a consumer protection for the digital consumer. Um, you know, we are naked when we go into this world of social media and everything else. Our privacy, our behavior, our habits uh, are, are all uh, on the market and, uh, and being traded often without us knowing. So I believe that we need uh, some, some first uh, boost the digital um, education uh, of, of, of citizens and, and explain what, uh, what are the risks uh, associated with different usages of, of, the, of the internet and the social media. And we need to have uh, um, uh, monitoring and supervision of uh, how um, the, the, the digital companies are treating their customers. Thank you. I want to turn to some of the questions from the audience. Um, we have one of the questions is, uh, how have certain countries and policies found ways to innovate um, new approaches to counter three P strategies um, on these new generation autocrats? 
Yeah, well, in the book, I have uh, recommendations for how to deal with each one of those. Uh, um, but there, there are things we can do. There are, there are combinations of institutional changes, political changes, uh, educational, tec technical uh, changes that can help. But the book is rooted uh, in the notion that not sufficient attention has been given to the ways in which these uh, new autocrats behave and uh, gain power and wield it. It's very important that people become better educated, better informed as to why uh, uh, these things happen, how, how, how it has it happened that people, that some of these um, highly undesirable people that we see in uh, running governments uh, uh, end up there. Uh, so it's very, yes, there are things we can do, but they will not be done effectively unless uh, the whole of society understands that there is an existential threat ahead and that democracy is in, in danger. We've got another question. Besides Venezuela, which regimes in Latin America do you think are abusing the three Ps the most uh, across the region? Argentina, without any doubt, uh, uh, it's there. It's just quite amazing to see how such a, uh, a country, wealthy, cultured, uh, uh, you know, um, a country that used to be a developed country uh, has now fallen into deep, deep disrepair. So Argentina will be my, my, my main, um, uh, and, and Peru. Mm -hmm. But the Peru is just more of a farce than, than a regime. Mm -hmm. We have a question. What happened to Juan Guaido? Sadly, it seems like he's completely disappeared and quickly becoming a footnote in the Maduro chapter of Venezuela. And the autocratic regime not only remains in power, but even more firmly. I wonder if you could comment on that. Sure. Uh, Guaido is uh, trying to do as much as he can. It's very limited in what he can do. He doesn't have the support of the army. At the end of the story the, in Venezuela, it has to do with guns, guys with guns. Uh, is, is, is there military, is there armed forces uh, that define uh, uh, the, the game there? And Maduro is uh, their head and together with the Cubans. Um, you cannot understand what's going on in Venezuela today and how to get out of the mess in which the country is without factoring in the, the Cuban uh, element. Cuba is, in fact, an occupying nation in Venezuela and is doing what occupying nations do, which is looting the country. Um, we've got a question from Eduardo Tapia. What are the risks of AMLO's continuing, uh, continuing polarization of politics in Mexico? Paralysis. Uh, and eventually a more autocratic, autocratic governments. Uh, uh, the, the, the way in which, uh, you know, he, he um, as I speak, Ambrose's popularity is very high. People like him. Uh, but uh, the way the policies that we know he's taking, the way he's tr treating the media, the way he's treating the opposition, um, the, the way he de makes decisions, uh, I think are very harmful for Mexico. We've got a question from Ernie Grijalva. Uh, political scientists used to teach the idea that more education would lead to stronger democracies. Uh, was that belief wrong? Not necessarily, but, um, you know, trying to find uh, uh, the factor uh, uh, that determines uh, such a complex uh, uh, outcome is, is very hard. When democracy fails, it doesn't fail because there is, you know, lack of education or not enough education. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a list. There is a list of, of factors that weaken democracy. 
um, and that um, you know in, are combined in, in in new ways all the time. We've got another question. You, you wrote about minilateralism in two thousand nine. This concept has gained currency since uh, then, uh, particularly with climate policy in the so-called climate clubs. Can you discuss how the concept um, discussed in your new book affects prospects for multi- multilateralism, unilateral action, and action in small groups of countries? That is a highly sophisticated question. Uh, uh, let me just briefly, and I thank uh, the, the, the person that asked the question because it's very timely, I believe. I essentially mentioned that there was deep and um, correct frustration with the outcome of uh, what is called the international community uh, of uh, multilateralism. Essentially, you have meetings, uh, typically at the United Nations or agency of the United Nations, and you had over 190 countries uh, operating there. And of course, uh, it's very hard to... um, you know, get agreements that are uh, acceptable to all of them. So the result has been to uh, accept the minimum common denominator, kicking the can ahead uh, to avoid having to show that there is no consensus. Um, and so what I did was I looked at, uh, I, I believe there were like seven areas of international cooperation. And I uh, calculated how many countries contributed to 90% of the problem. And it turned out that the number was very small. Uh, uh, it only takes a group of uh, less than 10 countries to generate 90% of the problem and 90% of the solution. Uh, and so that is minilateralism. It's trying to bring together countries that in small numbers that are more manageable uh, to try to get uh, some progress going. Uh, and uh, yes, the, the idea has uh, gained, uh, uh, since then, has gained uh, um, a lot of currency. Thank you. We've got a question from Julia Canny. Do you see a role for cities and subnational leaders in the pushback against these issues, as we've seen from mayors in Europe and Africa as they push back against authoritarian national policies? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a very important way out. Uh, devolution is important, uh, having uh, lo- regional readers, uh, state and local. Um, it's, uh, you know, these are the people that are in, in the first line of, of defense or, or of, of a relationship with the, with the citizens. Uh, the citizens are far closer to these uh, local uh, leaders than uh, the national leaders in the, in the nation's capital. So there's no doubt that uh, that's a very important uh, route. Okay. We've got a, a question from Isabel. What would you say then, would you say then that ideology is dead? Do you see China and Islamist um, as still partially ideological? Of course, I, I no, I, I don't think ideology is dead, much to the contrary. Uh, ideology is, uh, up, you know, is there. Uh, but, it, but very often it doesn't take uh, the, 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 you know, we cannot easily understand it as, a, as an ideology. Uh, but people are dr- being driven and politics are being driven by ideas and, uh, and, and statements of, about how, how uh, to operate in a, in a country today. Fernando Nunez um, asks, was, Hun- was um, Huntington right in his clash of civilizations um, when, he said, when he talked about the civilization fault lines, uh, for example, in the Ukraine and other countries? 
Well, there is a lot of evidence that uh, what Huntington mentioned, the, the clash of civilizations, uh, essentially took place in, uh, it, it was a clash uh, inside civilizations, not in between. The number of uh, uh, people murdered by, uh, the number of, of, of Muslims murdered by, is, by Muslims is much, much higher than any other uh, number. So, and that is happening inside uh, one of the big uh, uh, groupings. So we don't have a very good, uh, you know, trying to, to, to generate an identity, a political movement, an identity based on uh, um, the threats of other religions, I think is very dangerous. We've got a question from Abe Lowenthal, um, who um, was a Professor Emeritus from, he's a professor Emeritus from USC, and he's uh, an advisory council member for the Institute. Um, Abe's, Abe asks, what do you see as the proper responsibility, if any, of the United States in pressuring for measures to counter autocratic countries like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua? What are the, what are the limits and how do, you, do these differ from the responsibilities of Latin American democracies? And, thank, and he also thanks you for your uh, important book. Well, Abe is, uh, is my friend, for, has been my friend, uh, and I have admired his writing and working for decades now. So I'm, I'm honored that he has joined uh, um, this conversation. And of course, I'm very interested in his own take. I would rather have uh, be here asking questions to him than answering questions. But his question is very concrete and very apropos. And what should the United States do? Um, I, it, it, it will surprise you. Uh, my answer is pay attention and increase the level, the, the, the level, the frequency in which uh, high level decision makers in Washington uh, pay attention to uh, Latin America. Perhaps that's a too big a, a, a statement. And so perhaps identify a few countries that uh, have uh, the potential to move in the right direction and work in a very sustained way with resources, with attention, with programs uh, to, 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 to undermine uh, the 3P, the, the 3P uh, autocrats. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that this is a very, this is a very limited uh, uh, and modest uh, proposal, but I think it's very practical because the rest is Abe Lowenthal uh, wrote uh, years ago um, an article in which he explained how there was a structural um, bias uh, to, in terms of uh, the attention that the U.S. government could uh, would normally offer Latin America. Uh, Latin America was also always competing with other emergency or the priorities that a superpower has, and there was always something uh, that uh, um, that uh, made Latin America less relevant. We've got one final question. Um, when you look at the protesters in many Western democracies, we see a kind of a certain kind of demographic. Um, the case of the U.S., uh, mostly older white men of middle income level. They expose all sorts of conspiracy theories and seem to excuse Putin's aggression and extreme right-wing ideology. Um, wouldn't perhaps that be in, um, in the Western, would, how should Western democracies um, confront some of these, um, uh, these tendencies from, um, from interest groups of this sort? Well, that has a lot to do with the narrative. That has a lot to do with uh, how we fix uh, our democracies in order to avoid that a small interest group uh, uh, has a disproportionate uh, effect and power. 
essentially, the way to do this is to deepen in, in, in democracy and solve some uh, correct for some of its defects. Thank you. With that, I want to I want to close. I want to thank um, Moises Naim for his wonderful um, presentation and commentary. I want to encourage all of you to to buy his book, um, which is now out and available in all bookstores and and online. Um, and um, also um, want to thank the sponsor of um, this um, virtual forum, the Burnham Foundation, and thank the support of UCTV. Thank you again for your participation today, and we look forward to seeing you at future Institute of the Americas events. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.